Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Believing is Not Seeing, Persevering in the Promises of God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August 15, 2010. When I was in college, I had a friend who said that she loved reading the Bible. That is, until she studied the book of Hebrews. That epistle stymied her. If you've read Hebrews, then maybe you can empathize. It's difficult to understand, to say the least, and as many complex issues have kept capable scholars scratching their heads for two millennia. Part of the problem is that Hebrews, like every piece of historical literature, was written in a particular time and place by a certain author for a specific reason and to a unique audience. But both the authorship and the recipients of Hebrews are lost to us today. There are many conjectures about who wrote Hebrews, but perhaps Origen back in the third century said it best. Only God knows. Identifying the audience and the date when the book are written are a little different. It's an exercise in analyzing, tantalizing tidbits of information internal to the text and then making educated guesses. We know from chapter 2, verse 3, that the recipients of the letter are second-generation believers who heard the gospel from first-generation Christians. The text's elegant Greek, its many quotations from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in its distinctly Jewish themes, all suggest that the readers were a community of Hellenistic Jews who were also believers. The date of the book is early enough that the author refers to the priesthood and temple sacrificial practices in the present tense, which could mean that the letter was written before the temple's destruction in 70 AD. It's hard to imagine a date after 70 AD since this thoroughly Hebraic book never mentions that catastrophic destruction of the center of Judaism. It's also early enough that the recipients believed in the imminent return of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 10, 25, and 37. This was a belief that turned out to be wrong and therefore gradually waned as the decades receded. On the other hand, its dating is late enough for the readers to, ex to have experienced severe trials and tribulations, a situation which was not the case until several decades after Jesus. The author describes how the believers experienced the confiscation of their property, imprisonment, public insults, persecutions, the discontinuation of their meetings, presumably out of fear of, of the authorities, in what the author calls, quote, a great contest in the face of suffering. Chapter 10, 32 to 34. The date is also late enough that Paul's young protege, Timothy, is still alive after his release from prison. 13, 23. We also know that when a fire broke out in Rome, on June 18, A.D. 64, and destroyed about half the city, the psychopathic emperor Nero, whom some thought had started the fire himself, 
deflected criticism by blaming the Christians. In his Annals, the Roman historian Tacitus describes how Nero punished the Christians with quote-unquote refined cruelty. Before killing the Christians, says Tacitus, Nero quote, amused the people, end quote, with sadistic tortures. Listen to Tacitus's words. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illumine it. Nero opened his own garden for these shows, and in the circus he himself became a spectacle, for he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer. Connecting these dots leads me to conjecture that Hebrews was written during a narrow window of time, after the fire in Rome in 64 AD, and before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The context was that Jewish believers faced the challenge of significant persecutions. A Christian living under Nero might have easily believed that a reign of terror, and not the reign of God, was imminent. Imprisonment and government confiscation of property would have corroded community morale. No wonder some people stopped meeting together. These beleaguered believers, says the writer, were tempted to quote-unquote shrink back, to deny the faith, and to throw away their confidence. And so the author encourages his readers to draw near, to persevere in full assurance of faith, in unswerving hope, 10, 22, and 23. In particular, he exhorts them to imitate the faith of the saints, who had gone before them. A Christian who had lost house and home, endured public ridicule, or maybe saw a loved one mauled to death in the colossal Circus Maximus, which held 250,000 people, might ask many honest, hard questions about God's promises. Does God keep his promises? Exactly what does he promise? And what does it mean to believe God's promises? God's promises loom large in Hebrews 10 and 11. In fact, the word promise and its derivatives occur at least ten times in those two chapters. The author's line of thought is bookended by two remarkably candid admissions. I've typically read Hebrews 11 as a sort of hall of fame of spiritual superstars. Yes, it's true, that chapter honors saints who, in the words of 11.33 and 34, conquered kingdoms, shut the mouths of lions, and quenched the fury of flames. But this week, when I read more carefully, I discovered a different sort of saint. Alongside these mighty saints who quote-unquote gained what was promised, 1133, on two different occasions we read about the saints who did not receive what had been promised, chapter 11, verses 13 and 39. 
Here's how Hebrews describes those latter saints in chapter 11, 35 to 39. Others were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. This description is not a rhetorical or literary exaggeration. It could easily describe the life of a Christian under ancient emperors like Nero or Diocletian, or for that matter, modern despots like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, or Saddam Hussein. These exemplars of faith remained sure of what they hoped for, but did not see. They were certain of what God had promised, but they did not experience. Chapter 11.2 says, This is what the ancients were commended for. Abraham is only one, but perhaps the most important example of how, for the ancients, believing was far different than seeing. Abraham journeyed from a present clarity into future into a future of profound ignorance. He journeyed from what he had to what he did not have, from the known to the unknown from everything that was familiar to all things strange. Thus Hebrews commends the, his radical obedience to God, which defied both the inner propensities of human nature and the outer pressures of cultural conformity. We read in 11, 8, and 9, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as, in, as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. When his end came, we read in Hebrews 11.13, Abraham died without having received the promise. In the words of Edwin Muir's poem, Abraham, and I quote, the promise had not come, and he left his bones far from his father's house in alien Canaan. And so, with the stuff of his human life unfinished, and the promises of God unfulfilled, we read in Romans 4.16 how Abraham became the father of us all. And for further reflection, consider Romans chapter 4, 17 and 21. That God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And secondly, where are you on your spiritual journey? 
For books this week, I review Houston Smith in, con in collaboration with Jeffrey Payne. The title of the book, Tales of Wonder, Adventures Chasing the Divine, an autobiography. New York, Harper One, 2009, 209 pages. Born to Methodist missionary parents in rural China in 1920, Houston Smith enjoyed a distinguished career as a scholar of world religions at Washington University, MIT, Syracuse, and finally Berkeley. His book, The World's Religions, first published in 1958, has sold 2.5 million copies as an introductory university textbook on the subject. For more than 60 years, Smith has been not only an able scholar of comparative religions, but a beloved teacher, a self-described voice in the wilderness decrying the corrosive forces of secular modernity and scientism, and perhaps above all, an avid practitioner of what he has preached. As I write this book review, Houston Smith is 91 years old. He describes this book as the one strangest but also closest to me. He organizes his autobiography along the two axes that every person experiences. The horizontal axis of dates, jobs, people, and places and then the vertical axis of our relationship to the sacred. Smith speaks with love, reverence, and unabashed nostalgia about his upbringing in rural China until he came to the United States at the age of 17. He's well aware of the charges that he's refashioned his own liberal faith in defiance of his conservative upbringing. Well, he writes, that's what it may look like from the outside but not from the inside. My parents' Christianity was, to my boyhood eyes, neither missionary nor triumphal nor fundamentalist. It was simply goodness. And as a boy, I watched the drama of what goodness can do in the world. As for the horizontal axis of his life, Smith relates 12 frontiers or turning points in his life. He's been married to his beloved Kendra for almost 70 years now. They lost an adult child to cancer and a granddaughter to a mysterious murder. He recalls encounters with Huxley, the Dalai Lama, and his decades of globetrotting. In the second half of the book, he describes his own personal Christian faith and how he says in his own words, I never saw a religion I didn't like. Smith was a devoted follower of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam for ten years each. In a subsequent chapter, he outlines his experiences of native religions, entheogens, or what he calls God-enabling drugs, including taking LSD with Timothy Leary, and then ultimate reality. It's no wonder, he writes, that, quote, some friends accused me of whoring after the infinite. Well, what better whoredom is there? For his last word, Smith turns to the words of the Christian saint and martyr, John Chrysostom. Praise, praise for everything. 
thanks, thanks for it all. The author is Houston Smith. The title of his autobiography, Tales of Wonder. For movies this week, we travel to Argentina. The title of the film, The Secret in Their Eyes, from 2009. Part crime thriller and part love story, The Secret in Their Eyes won the 2009 Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. Set in 1999, Benjamin Esposito is a police detective who, when he retires, decides to write a novel about a crime from way back in 1974 that still nevertheless haunted him. The film thus proceeds by means of extended and repeated flashbacks. The first part of the film involves solving the rape homicide. The case is complicated and is used to make a commentary on the travesties of justice in the judicial system. As the film unfolds, however, we also learn of the love affair that never happened, but should have happened, between Esposito and his beautiful boss, Irene. The look was in their eyes all along. The plot involves several complicated twists and turns, which keep this film moving even though it is almost two and a half hours long. The secret in their eyes is in Spanish with English subtitles. And for poetry this week, we turn to St. John of the Cross, who lived from 1542 to 1591. I live yet do not live in me, am waiting as my life goes by, in die because I do not die. No longer do I live in me, and without God I cannot live. To him or me I cannot give myself, so what can living be? A thousand deaths my agony, waiting as my life goes by, dying because I do not die. This life I live alone I view as robbery of life, and so it is a constant death, with no way out until I live with you. God, hear me, what I say is true. I do not want this life of mine, and die because I do not die. Being so removed from you, I say what kind of life can I have here, but death so ugly and severe, and worse than any form of pain. I pity, me, and yet my fate is that I must keep up this lie, and die because I do not die. The fish taken out of the sea is not without a consolation. His dying is of brief duration, and ultimately brings relief. Yet what convulsive death can be as bad as my pathetic life? The more I live, the more I die. When I begin to feel relief on seeing you in the sacrament, I seek in deeper discontent, deprived of your sweet company. 
Now everything compels my grief. I want, yet can't, see you nearby, and die because I do not die. Although I find my pleasure, sir, in hope of someday seeing you, I see that I can lose you, too, which makes my pain doubly severe. And so I live in darkest fear, in hope, wait as life goes by, dying because I do not die. Deliver me from death, my God, and give me life. Now you have wound a rope about me, harshly bound. I ask you to release the cord. See how I die to see you, Lord. And I am shattered where I lie, dying because I do not die. My death will trigger tears in me, and I shall mourn my life. A day annihilated, by the way, I fail and sin relentlessly. O Father God, when will it be that I can say without a lie, I live because I do not die? St. John of the Cross, translated by Willis Barnstone, found in a book, Poems of St. John of the Cross. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August 15th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.